fantastic. And to the people who play the instruments, we think of Melanie and the piano, but all the others, the whole orchestra, great job, wow. If you were here last week, you know we had a concert that was quite amazing by the Keepers of Faith, but I think we have amazing concerts week after week after week, and praise the Lord for that. Well, I was a new believer in Jesus Christ, came to faith in Christ, and I had a friend who uh, came to faith not too long after that. We were talking one day, and he presented something to me that came from the pen of Bertram Russell. had no idea who that guy was, but Bertram Russell is actually a British philosopher, Nobel laureate, uh, historian, writer, political activist, and well-known atheist. He wrote a book called Why I, Am Not, I, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in that book, which was actually a sermon, or a, not a sermon, but a lecture delivered in March of 1927, he made reference to the text of Scripture that we're going to study. He said, this is one of the reasons why I'm not a Christian. And he had a list of things, but one of them was the fact that Jesus really wasn't all that great of a moral teacher. I mean, he was okay, but he had some real problems. And so Bertrand Russell said this, there's this curious story of the fig tree, which always puzzled me. You remember what happened to the fig tree, and he relates the story that we're going to read in just a moment, how Jesus cursed the barren fig tree. This is a curious story, says Russell, because it was not the right time of year for figs, and How could you really blame the tree for not producing fruit? I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or the matter of virtue, Jesus stands quite as high as other people known in history. I would put Buddha and Socrates above him in these respects. It wasn't very Jesus-like to curse the fig tree. Even more bold is something that comes from the pen of J.M. Green. This is in the blogosphere, uh, a blog uh, entitled Debunking Christianity, and the title of this article is Jesus Behaving Badly About the Fig Tree. It's hard to act mature all the time, even for the Son of God. The Gospels contain a number of incidents in which Jesus gets annoyed and angry. I don't want to be too hard on him because he was hungry, and I know how cranky I get when I am starving, but nonetheless... Shouldn't we expect better behavior from someone who's supposed to be God in human form? In anger management classes, we were were told that anger comes from the frustration of having one's goals blocked. When we get angry, we sometimes lash out at inanimate objects, kicking them, smashing them, or cursing them. Jesus exhibits very human traits in this portion of Scripture. And then he trots off to Jerusalem to engage in an even much bigger, more violent tantrum. Frustration is a sign of weakness, not of an all-powerful, loving creator. In the magic world of the Bible, snakes and donkeys sometimes talk. I'd like to imagine that if this withered fig tree could have spoken, it might have said to Jesus, why don't you just grow up? (laughs) How sad is that? But then some Christians, like one theologian 
says, This whole story about the fig tree doesn't ring true, to be frank. It doesn't seem worthy of Jesus. It seems to have to show a certain petulance. The whole action is unreasonable. And thus people criticize the scriptures, showing a very shallow view of spiritual discernment and insight. We should not be surprised at those who don't know Christ when they don't understand the Bible because it says that the Bible is spiritually oriented, spiritually discerned, and those who are still in their natural state cannot understand that which is spiritual. But when Christians have a problem with this passage, that's pretty interesting. But I submit to you, we start at the story of the fig tree, not with verse 12 in Mark 11, but with Mark 11, 11. So open your Bibles to the story of killing trees and flipping tables. <laughs> Jesus is kind of ticked. Uh, verse 11, I think, is the key verse. Remember last week we read about Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the donkey, the triumphal entry, what we normally think of on Palm Sunday, and people shouting, Hosanna. But look at verse 11 in Mark 11, and I have it on the screen here for you. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, Sunday night, he went back out to Bethany with the 12 where he spent the night. I want you to notice, he looked around at everything in the city of Jerusalem, and it broke his heart. And he went back to Bethany, that place of retreat, and maybe even spent the night in prayer, we don't know, before he came back Monday morning, and we read the account that begins with verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, going back into the city, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. Get this because it was not the season for figs. Passover is mid-April, and a fig tree might leaf in March or April, but figs don't come till late May or June. It wasn't the season for figs. Nevertheless, verse 14, Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and the disciples heard him say it. Now you have to actually jump down to verse 20, in the morning, the next day, so this is Tuesday, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, there's the fig tree you cursed, and it has withered. Jesus is talking to trees? And when he talks to trees, he curses them? It does sound a little... Petulant, like a spoiled child who doesn't get what he wants. And my friend, if you're just reading over the scripture in a rather cursory fashion, I will tell you not only this passage, but a lot of places in the Bible will really shake you to your core. Is Jesus being spiteful because he didn't get what he wanted? Disappointed because he didn't get his meal? Not that at all. Not that at all, because this isn't about trees. This is about Israel. 
You say, what do you mean? This is a dramatic sermon, and Jesus is acting much like Jeremiah did. When God gave him a message, he said, listen, the people aren't getting it, so I want you to do something dramatic. So Jeremiah would go around with very little clothes on his back or in chains, or he would burn something, and it was a, he would cause a scene. And that would stimulate interest and draw attention, and people would look at him, and some would say, crazy Jeremiah, but others would say, wait a minute, he's God's prophet. Maybe he has a message for us. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. This is a visual sermon to create curiosity, to draw attention. He was commenting on what he saw the night before. And this is what he saw. Israel. Outwardly looking good. Magnificent temple, wonderful robes that the priests were wearing. Filled house. I mean to tell you during Passover that place would be filled with probably two, maybe even three million people living in Jerusalem and in the outskirts. But Israel, although they had the outward signs of religion, prosperity, inwardly they lacked sincerity and truth. They were like lush, lush foliage, but no fruit. And those who come hungry to Israel looking for spiritual food Go away finding nothing. Now, much like the story of the swine back in Mark chapter 5, Jesus, when Jesus sent the demons out of a man into the swine and the herd went running down the side of the hill. Remember that story? And they all drowned in the sea and some people say, oh, poor swine. Now, there's nothing wrong with being kind to animals. In fact, righteous people should be kind to animals. But they're a lower level of creation than man. And one man coming to his senses is worth thousands of pigs. And yet in our day and time, you won't get many amens from people like Tita who say, oh no, animals have souls. Oh no, they don't. Now be kind to them. But Jesus here is using a fig tree. By the way, he honored that fig tree so that that fig tree that doesn't have a soul and couldn't talk, by the way, is demonstrating a great spiritual lesson to all of us. It's just a tree. And he doesn't go around abusing nature. He's the one who created it, but he'll use it. And he does often to declare his glory. By the way, Israel, if you go into the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Hosea, in the book of Joel, in the book of Micah, Israel is called God's vine. Listen to Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted with it in it the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well and Then he looked for a good crop of grapes, but it only yielded bad fruit. Now you dwellers of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? And when I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. 
I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, land neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. That's what's happening here. As it says in Jeremiah 8, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There'll be no grapes on the vine. There'll be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken away from them. God saw, Jesus saw what was going on in Jerusalem, and his heart was grieved, and now he preaches to his disciples in a very dramatic story they will never forget. Planted by God, watered by the prophets, barren and unfruitful. Judgment on Israel. But you know, God is seeking fruit from all of his people. Not just Israel, but the church too, us. He's looking to us, South Church. And what have I done for you? I've planted you, I made you, I've watered you, I've pruned you, and I look for fruit. And what do I find? You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bear fruit. John 15, this is how my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And what happens to the branches that don't bear fruit? Cast aside, cut off, burned. Wow. He's seeking fruit from us. Spiritual fruitfulness is of immense importance. And we ignore this important truth to our peril. So the story is pretty vivid. Not about a fig tree. It's about the people of God. But this wonderful story about the fig tree wraps around another amazing story that seems to show the anger of Christ. It's when he starts flipping tables. Because after he cursed the fig tree, he reaches Jerusalem, verse 15, and he enters the temple area, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. Now, that wasn't news to him. He saw it the night before. And he came in with a grieved heart and it determined what he was going to do. He began driving out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches and those who were selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple court. And then when he paused for a brief moment, he began to teach them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? It's about prayer. And it's about everybody. That's, by the way, a direct quote from Isaiah 56. But you have made my house a den of robbers. Chief priests and teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. The temple area is about 30 acres on the top of Mount Moriah. 
It has three sections to it, or had in that day, with a large wall separating some of the sections. The outer court was the court of the Gentiles. It was the largest area by far, and that's as far as the Gentiles could go. It was about three football fields long and almost a football field wide, 250 yards wide. This was the place where they would buy and sell. After all, people traveling from a long distance couldn't bring their sacrifices, so they would bring their money and they would buy the animals, the doves, that they would then take for sacrifice. Doves were for the poor. So it's as though the people out in the outer court were doing the others a service, the pilgrims, except they exploited them. You could get a dove outside of the wall for two shekels, but inside it was nine. And they pocketed the profit. The next inner court, or the next part of the temple court, was the court of the women. And if you were a Jewish woman, you could go into the next section. By the way, if you go to the Wailing Wall today, the women have to be on one side and the men have to be on another. There's still some degree of separation. And the women couldn't go to the inner court, which was the court of the Israelites. And that's where the sacrifices were actually made. And that's where the men could go. And the priests would function and the temple itself was in that inner court. But it's in this outer court that Jesus begins to flip tables. Sometimes a demonstration like that can really wake people up. When I first came to South Church in the old building, uh, I had a door that went right out into the hallway and lacked a little bit of privacy. And so I thought, you know, it might be a good idea if we would just cover that door, wall it up, and make a door from my secretary's office into mine. It would give me just a little bit of privacy and people would have to come to the secretary first and the board approved it, and I told the church I wasn't trying to cut myself off from them, but that's just what we were doing. But what happened on the day of construction was we had to knock a hole in the wall between my secretary's office and mine. So the people from Wheel and Dave Co. came to do that, and I got a hold of them ahead of time and said, hey, let me do it. Give me your hammer. So they gave me a hammer. My secretary, Diane Hill at that time, was sitting at her desk, I came walking into her room, went over to the wall and said, I've had it, and I just whack in that wall. <laughs> Holes in it and everything. You should have seen the look on her face. She quit not long after that. <laughs> but it got her attention, and she never forgot that. Sometimes sermons just need to be a little dramatic. And Jesus got their attention by flipping the tables. Money changers, you know, you, you couldn't use common money, the money from the other lands. Uh, you had to have coinage only from Israel. None of those images of a heathen king on it. You had to have the half shekel, the temple tax. And they would give them to you. They would sell them to you. But like money changers anywhere in the world, you have to pay a premium to have your money changed in the currency of another nation and they would charge more than they should have. It was all about profit. And Jesus was angry. Does God ever get angry? Oh, yeah. Get this. The word for anger is used about 455 times in the Old Testament. 375 times it refers to God's anger. That's over 82%. Our anger is often 
petulant. It's, It's because we don't get what we want. It's illegitimate anger based on distorted thinking. It's our own passions rising up within us. The emotions of displeasure, usually antagonism, incited by some injury or insult, says Gary Chapman in his wonderful book, The Other Side of Love, all about anger. And then even physiological changes take place in us. The hormones, the chemicals, we actually physically get hot and our face gets red and we get livid and uncontrollable. But not with God. God's anger is always righteous. And don't think that God isn't an angry God. That's a just, legitimate characteristic. It's only spoiled when it's found in man. But the Bible doesn't say God is anger. The Bible says God is what? Love. And while wrath and judgment are part of his ways, they are, as Isaiah says, his strange ways. He only reverts to that when we walk away from what's good for us. Why was he angry here? Exploitation. These people were taking advantage of the pilgrims. God always hates injustice, but doubly so when it's cloaked in the covering of religion. Tragedy. It's a tragedy when the world thinks that the church is only concerned about money. And that's the first impression they have of us. Exploitation. Secondly, desecration. Jesus could not tolerate God's name or God's temple being defiled. This wasn't the purpose. By the way, the court of the Gentiles sat on the southern end of the Temple Mount. That's the exact place where Solomon's temple once stood. The place where in Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and what did he cry? And what did the seraphs cry? Holy, holy, holy. And the place was still considered holy, and it was on that very holy place that people were desecrating the name of God. Zeal for my father's house has consumed me, Jesus said. He was filled with a passion for the righteousness of God. It's okay to get angry for a righteous cause. And then maybe discrimination was another reason he was angry. This is to be a temple for all nations or a house for all nations. But you Jews now have become so exclusive. That is, you religious leaders, so elitist. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to all nations. And you want to keep it only to yourself. Church, is that us, filled with bias and prejudice? And we want to keep it all to ourselves and don't want anyone else to come in. Some of the racial problems in America can be laid at the feet of the church. And some of that still exists today. That's why our country is having so many racial problems, in part because the church can't see beyond the color of its skin. 
But Jesus got angry. By the way, look at verse 16. He wouldn't even allow people to carry merchandise through the temple courts. The Mishnah even had a law that said, stop using the temple courts as a shortcut. They were actually walking right through the temple because it was a shortcut. They weren't there to do anything like worship. And so God is not only seeking fruitfulness from his people, he's seeking authentic, honest worship. That's what he's seeking. Remember John chapter 4? The time is coming and now is when the Father seeks people to worship him in spirit and in truth. So what does God want from South Church? He wants spiritual fruit and he wants honest worship. And if it's not here, it grieves his soul and makes him angry. What more could he do to make us fruitful than to give us the person of Jesus Christ? To rob the words from C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book, The Chronicles of Narnia. Is Jesus safe? (laughs) Safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. And he's king. And if we walk away from the goodness of God, be assured, my friends, there is judgment to come. Kind of sobering, isn't it? And yet, if we repent of our sin and turn to Jesus, he's love, not anger. He redeems and forgives. So what's the lesson of all of this? Well, look at verse 20. In the morning, so the next day, Tuesday, they went along and they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. That means it was a supernatural withering, not just some disease that plates it from the edge of the branch or from its fruit alone. And Peter remembered, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed. It's withered. And Jesus' response is, here's the lesson. Have faith in God. Have genuine trust in Jehovah, the trust that causes you to follow him. Believe him with your hearts. Quit playing the game of religion. And know Jesus from your heart. And then he says this. If you have faith in God, I tell you the truth. Prayer works. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done to him. And our friends, the atheists, point to this verse and say, that's a lie. It won't work. But what they don't realize is that this is a Hebrew idiom. And the mountain is symbolic of difficulty. And the rabbis, who were good at counseling people and helping them to work through their problems and difficulties, were, get this, called mountain movers. Go to speak to this rabbi, he'll move your mountain. He'll give you the counsel of God. And it means that God has the power to eliminate the difficulties you face or give you grace to endure them. Nowhere we promise that every problem will be taken care of or worked out to our own satisfaction. But we are promised this, that if we cast ourselves upon the Lord and trust in his loving providence, 
He will work all things ultimately for the glory of God and the good of his people. There'll be suffering to endure. So verse 24 is not a carte blanche invitation to ask whatever you want and believe that you receive it and you'll get it because the rest of Scripture gives direction to that prayer. But what it does do is opens up the door and says, you're not asking enough. If our God is God, and he is, if he's king, and he is, then we ought to bring great petitions to him. Petitions of healing, conversion, Radical change in those who have emotional issues, relational conflicts, governments, elections. Pray. Have faith in God. And trust His loving providence. But by the way, there's a foundation for prayer. It's verse 25 and verse 26. When you stand praying, which is one of the many forms or postures of prayer, sometimes they're flat on their face, sometimes on their knees, sometimes standing with hands uplifted. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone else, you better forgive him so that your Father in heaven can forgive you. If you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Wow. That's pretty important. Prayer flows from a forgiving heart. This is a bit of a paraphrase from, I think, an excellent paragraph that comes from a theologian who said, if God's heart is love and light, then our heart must agree with his. If bitterness fills our soul, or we could say unbelief, or arrogance and pride, which God resists, if these things fill our soul, we can't have intimacy with God. We have nothing in common with him. God is light, and those who walk with him must walk in light. If darkness fills our heart, we don't have intimacy with God. If the ruling principle of our heart is bitterness, and the ruling principle of God's heart is love, there is a barrier erected between us and God which prayer cannot overcome so our first prayer ought to be this if we want any prayers answered God forgive me God cleanse my soul from its bitter spirit and put in my soul the spirit of Christ the spirit of love then we can speak to God in his language and we'll see mountains move. What a great passage for the church of the 21st century called South. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak to my heart today. May you show me the things that keep me from being fruitful and show me the things wherein my worship is defiled. Forgive me of my sin. I forgive anyone 
who's ever offended me. Forgive me for all the people I've offended. And give to me, as it says in Psalm 51, a pure heart that I might speak your language and see mountains move for the glory of God. In whose name we pray.